So let me make um, a map, if you like, of the criteria that I think makes sense to choose in a, when, you, when you're looking for a suitable marriage victim, uh, marriage um, <laughs> partner. What are the criteria that you should be looking for? So let me try to map out what I think are uh, criteria that make sense. Experience shows to be important. <coughs> Torah sources make these things clear. And uh, <coughs> try to emphasize more <coughs> some of the variables <coughs> that are important to mentors and people working in this field, helping young people, <coughs> helping others get married. Because a few months ago we discussed the subject. I don't want to cover exactly the same ground. So let's try to, to uh, uh, point it in that direction. I think just to, to give it a framework, <coughs> I think when looking for someone suitable to marry, I think a sensible way to do it is to make a red line and put above that red line <coughs> two non-negotiable criteria, two things that are absolutely essential, without which the relationship will be in trouble. And below the red line, negotiables. Negotiables don't mean things <coughs> that are not important. In fact, they may be critical, but they're not universally important. For example, you know, um, let's say health. Should you marry somebody who's healthy? I think that's negotiable. I used to know a young couple that I, I met and I used to see every day this young woman was taken off for treatment and two years later she died. When I went to see the young man, he told me that they got married four years before. When they got engaged, she told him she had terminal cancer. <clears throat> he married her anyway and he said it was the most wonderful four years of his life. Okay, but not everybody could do that. <clears throat> now he's looking to get married again. For some people, that would be out of the question. Others could handle it. Other variables. The young lady's mother. <clears throat> some young ladies have mothers who are nice. Others need a place to park their broom <clears throat> when they visit. <clears throat> you know, and uh, for some young men, they say, I need to marry into a warm, loving family. Others will say, you know, it's no problem. We'll live in Alaska. We won't have a phone. <clears throat> It'll be fine. <clears throat> And there are many other variables that could wreck a marriage, attitudes to money, many other things like that. But they're not universally important. But there are two, I think, that are universally important. <clears throat> By the way, when we talk about the non-negotiable criteria, I'm assuming, of course, that there's some absolutes that already exist. Right? Absolutes would be the young man setting out to get married. The person who's thinking of marrying should be female. Right? <clears throat> you know that's still a Jewish value, even though it's becoming much less popular. But that is still an approach we have. Not only that, the person must be Jewish. Not because you can't have a wonderful relationship with a non-Jew. Of course you can. But Kiddushin is the meshing of those two opposites that, we, that are male and female. And therefore, and by the way, the reason for this, the deep reason, is because we understand that a marriage is a reconstitution of original oneness. According to Kabbalistic teaching, husband and wife are really two fused halves that were torn apart before being brought down to the world. According to... Kabbalah, the Gemara says that they were fused back to back and brought down into the material world by being split apart, having to face each other. Back to back is wonderful because it means there's no back, there's no vulnerable dark side. The back in spiritual thinking is always the side of contamination, excretion, darkness, unrecognizability. The front is the side of Kedusha, of sanctity. So there's no back, it's just two fronts, but there's no relationship. And then they're torn apart and brought down to the world to face each other, make that relationship with a vulnerability. <clears throat> that's involved. And therefore, really, a marriage is a reconstitution. The reason you can't marry a non-Jew <clears throat> is not because you can't have a good relationship with a non-Jewish person, but because, by definition, they're not the two halves of that same original 
you know, a very beautiful way of saying this is that when that original Jewish marriage, which was the original archetypal Jewish marriage? Not Jewish. Avram and Sarah, right? When their marriage, <coughs> their marriage policy, if you like, is stated, it's at the moment they cross the border from Egypt to Israel, from Israel to Egypt. As they move <coughs> from the world of sanctity to the world of contamination, Egypt was a place of terrible depravity. And as they cross the border, he turns to his wife and he says, please tell them you're my sister. The Torah is never talking practical strategy. Always something deeper than that. And what's being said there is that in the root of Jewish marriage, is that every husband should think of his wife as his sister. Because brother and sister are two separate people who come from a common origin. In fact, the word ach in Hebrew, which means a brother or a sister, ach, achot, means to stitch together something torn that was once one. Laache means to stitch together. And therefore, these are two human beings who were once one, and they come into the world as separate people and have to reunite and reassert that original bond. That's the brother-sister bond. Of course, it's no accident that Avram Avinu, Abraham is one, is called the one who stitches together a torn world. He unites heaven and earth, which Kabbalistically are male and female as well. And every Jewish marriage is an echo of that. So that is it. That's an essential. And the others as well, for those of you who work in this field, another one would be the fact that, let's say a young woman knows she cannot have children. If she can't have children, that raises issues, because since we only marry one today, right? We only marry one partner, one man, one woman. <clears throat> so if the young man knows the woman cannot have children, there's an issue. Because part of the mitzvah of marriage is to have children. A man has a mitzvah to have children. So if the girl cannot have children, there's an issue. How's that handled? There are ways to handle that. One young woman once came to ask. She told me she was born without ovaries. Which means she can carry a pregnancy. She has a womb, a uterus, but she cannot conceive. She said to me, who's going to marry me? But if you tell me that it's allowed for me to use the egg of another woman, my husband will fertilize the egg, and then I will carry that pregnancy. If he fulfills his mitzvah that way, then I'll be able to get married. And it's a very difficult question. It's not ideal, although surrogacy in that sense is certainly, certainly allowed. It's not forbidden, but there are many issues. I'm not going to go into now unless you have a particular interest in that field. But a better option for her, for example, would be to marry a, young, a man who cannot have children. Or to marry a man who's already fulfilled the mitzvah of having children. In fact, the Gemara says an amazing thing. The Gemara says that if a man loses his wife and he has young children, he can marry in the first week of mourning for his wife. They can't live together intimately because he's a mourner. But why should the children be motherless? And so to become a mother to children who already exist in the world, who need a wonderful mitzvah. And there are various ways of handling that question. So there's some absolute issues, by the way. A fascinating question is, why do women not have a mitzvah to get married in the first place? A man's mitzvah to get married. Right? Women don't have a mitzvah to get married at all. <coughs> why not? So once a young girl said to me, a very, very special young girl, very talented, amazing young girl. The fact that she's my daughter is completely irrelevant. <coughs> <laughs> but she said to me, she would like to ask my rabbi a question. She said, so next time we saw him, we sat down and she said, I have two questions for you. My first question is, why do I not have a mitzvah to get married? If God wants me to get married, Hashem wants me to get married, He would have instructed me. If He hasn't given me a mitzvah to get married, evidently He doesn't want me to get married. So why, why should I? 
Why do I have no mitzvah to get married? And secondly, why was Chava cursed in an area that's optional? Isn't that an interesting question? Eve, Chava, was cursed that she would have difficulty pregnancy and pain in childbirth. What sort of a curse is it when you say to a person, you will have difficulty in this area, but it's optional, just don't do it if you don't want to. You'd imagine that man and woman will be cursed in an area that's essential, that's intrinsic to their being when they pervert their way in the world. But Hashem said, it's optional. And he answered like this, he said, very, he said that your, your two questions have the same answer. And that is that we are only given mitzvahs in areas of deficiency. A mitzvah is always given in an area where you're deficient. The mitzvah is an exercise in completion. A classic example would be that women do not have mitzvahs that are time-bound. Right? Women don't have time-bound mitzvahs because women already resonate with time. Their bodies cycle with time in a way that, that's very, very mysterious. You know, the ovarian cycle, there's no medical explanation for it. All other biological cycles are connected to day-night variation, seasonal change, temperature changes. The ovary cycles with the moon. There's one female cycle that goes monthly, starts on the same date of the Hebrew month. Whether it's a long month or a short month, the ovary knows what the moon's doing. Medicine has no idea how that works. So women resonate with the time cycle. They don't need mitzvahs to discipline them into that area. And therefore, mitzvahs only given where you have a deficiency. And therefore, the mitzvah of marriage for men is they don't understand that naturally. They need to be disciplined into that. But a woman understands it naturally generally speaking. It doesn't need a mitzvah. And therefore she's not given a mitzvah, not because Hashem doesn't want her to marry, but he doesn't need to force her into it. And of course Chava was cursed in an area that's of her essence. The fact that she wasn't, she's not given a mitzvah does not mean, on, on the contrary, it means it is so much of her essence that she doesn't need a disciplining action in this area. But be that as it may, of course a woman fulfills the mitzvah when she gets married. She becomes beholden to her husband's mitzvah. A woman cannot marry and then say she won't have children. Because once she takes on that mitzvah, she can't say it's going to be painful or dangerous. Under normal circumstances, she needs to do that. But let's talk about the two non-negotiables. If you have questions about the medical issues, and there are many questions, should one disclose a medical issue, and when was done, one disclose it, we can talk about that. But let's just make the map first. I would say the first non-negotiable, what would you say? What's the first non-negotiable? You're dating someone, you met them a few times, what's the first question to ask? I would say attraction. I would say there must be a chemistry. You must like the person. Physically, there must be a certain chain. Enjoying being with them. Not a logical thing. You like pink, I like blue. It's a question of taste. And this is very important. And one of the classic errors we see in this area, and again, speaking to people who work in this field, one of the classic errors we see in this area is in the Balchiva world. People who are newly religious, brought up in a secular mode, and they think to become religious means becoming very spiritual, and the material and the physical should be ignored. It's a serious mistake. One young man, many years ago, said to me, can we please talk about the woman, young lady that he's dating? I said, yeah, absolutely. He told me she was very spiritual and very, the way she said to heal him, you know, she, was, yeah, she could have been Mrs. Mashiach. You know, this lady was... <laughs> so after he told me all about her wonderful qualities, I said to him, do you like her? And he said, no. You know, so religious that he wanted to marry, but a woman is a spiritual being, but she's also a material being. And marriage has that side, very important. Marriage is hard at the best of times. And therefore, there needs to be a natural attraction. The Gemara says, especially for men, 
man marries a woman, should see her beforehand and contract a marriage on paper alone. For women also it's important, it's less important. Women are considered to be more mature in understanding the meaning of a relationship. They'll put up with more or less, not sure which, but they'll find meaning in a relationship when a man might not be mature enough to do so. But it's important, and by the way, again for people who work with young people, it's also important to know, people need the discipline to know that after marriage, also pay attention to your, to your appearance. There's a young man, he's looking good, he's dating. You know he's dating for the first time in 18 years, he's wearing a clean shirt, smelling like a flower. The trouble is after marriage, sometimes that changes, that changes, you know, shape starts to change subtly. That's not respectful. If you make yourself look good before marriage, you have to make yourself look good afterwards. Women are often guilty of the same thing. They look stunning before marriage. And then a few days after marriage, they, you know, when they go out, they look wonderful. But at home, they look like something the cat dragged in. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not respectful. If you make yourself look nice beforehand, you have to make yourself pay attention. Shlomo Zalman was in his 80s. He used to make himself look nice when he walked up the stairs to his home, his wife's home. That's respectful, and you have to do that as well, of course. So attraction, very important. And it needs to be there. We put it first because it's easiest to assess. You meet a person a few times, not necessarily once. Sometimes a person grows on you. But if you meet a person a few times, you need to feel that there's, that there's an attraction. Many people ask, how attractive? Does a person you have to look at the person and, you know, get sort of life-threatening asthma? You know, so it's a, it's, a, it's a mild breathlessness. You know, that's a good sign, right? At least. How attractive the person has to be, I'm not sure it's so important. You change with time, pregnancy changes you, age changes you. But I think it has to be positive. <clears throat> person, there's a red line in this area too. Below the red line, person, you'd feel offensive, you wouldn't want to be close to the person. Above the red line, you feel positive, you could be close to them. I think it needs to be positive. Not necessarily, there always be somebody more attractive. But I think it needs to be, it needs to be positive and I think this needs to work on both sides, male and female. I remember a young lady who very tensely, anxiously knocked at my door one Saturday night. <coughs> What's the problem? She told me she's getting married in eight days' time, <coughs> Sunday a week, and she feels now that the time is approaching. She's not sure she could be close to her husband physically. She respects him as a wonderful person, but she's been putting this aside, and it's a problematic area. So I said to her, you think about it now, and you make a commitment now. You decide now you're going ahead with this and you never look back, or you call it off now. And she sat there at my table and she agonized over it for a long time and decided to get married. They got married. They got divorced on their wedding night. She felt she couldn't go home with him. <coughs> that was the end of the marriage. Not good. One young man came to see me <coughs> a couple of weeks after marriage, looking very depressed. Can't live with his wife. He can't be close to her. I said, why not? She doesn't look like my mother. I said, what? He said, he always wanted to marry a girl who looked like his mother. So, and I, we knew my wife and I were close to his wife. She was a very lovely girl, very attractive, very special. I said, why did you marry her? He said, my rabbi said it would be okay. Problematic. Problematic. If you work with people, you cannot take responsibility. You're working with a person, you're a shadchan, you're a mentor, you teach people, you work with people. The young couple must take responsibility. Young, whatever age they are. If they don't put them, their, their commitment into it, if they don't take responsibility, they marry because you say it will be okay. 
at three o'clock in the morning when things are difficult and it's not okay and they're not committed because they never made the decision you can't do that you can guide and you can show clarity and crystallize issues but they need to take responsibility it's true occasionally you can apply some pressure when it's clear we had one young man in England who was his only child and he lived only with his mother and three weeks before his wedding he started to get terrified I mean literally terrified he, he spent all day in bed in the fetal position crying <laughs> but we knew it was just fear we knew I mean she was a wonderful girl he was clear he wanted to marry her he was just too afraid so we carried him to the chuppah two rabbis we carried him to the chuppah <laughs> in the fetal position crying <laughs> and we held him we held him under the chuppah and we managed to somehow do what he had to do and married for many years very happily that was just a case of sheer terror <laughs> but normally usually applying pressure and making decisions taking responsibility of a couple that's a bad mistake your job is to guide them into seeing with clarity and helping them assess know themselves know each other but the responsibility and the commitment that has to be theirs so I think the first issue is there needs to be a, a chemistry often it's cultural we are products of our cultures and our families once there's some sort of a, uh, a feeling as you heard before doesn't necessarily have to be similarities it could be differences it could be opposites it could be similarities once there's a connection that's I think very important and the second criteria without any question the most important by far is character the person the raw material that you can't afford to forget. The discussion of similarities and differences pales into insignificance compared to an assessment of who the person actually is. Values, values are important, of course, and if you have a difference in religious values, for example, that's a recipe for trouble, recipe for disaster. Obviously, there has to be a commonality of goal, not necessarily the same level. A person who's very religious, very knowledgeable, could marry somebody who's relatively beginner, provided there's aspiration and there's inspiration and there's enthusiasm to move in the same direction nothing wrong with that but what you cannot afford to overlook <clears throat> is who the person actually is the best you could hope for the best you could look for is somebody who's kind affectionate giving coping <clears throat> happy loving a normal South African If you choose somebody who's problematic, psychopathic, twisted, hung up, then you're in trouble. Unless you are psychopathic and twisted and hung up, then you'll be fine. <laughs> I think I mentioned last time we met a wonderful story about a sadist and a masochist who got married. Sadist and a masochist got married, right? Wonderful. As soon as the door was closed, the masochist said to the sadist, hurt me. And the sadist said, no. <laughs> Perfect relationship. So... Not everybody, obviously people come with the issues, people have baggage. But the important thing is a <coughs> compatibility. Can you handle this person in terms of their real personality? Marrying a person on the assumption that they will change deeply, very risky. Very risky. There's a lifetime of work to change one characteristic. People seldom manage to do that. And therefore, the, I think the most important criterion is an assessment of who the person actually is. Many people, young people, tell me I need to marry somebody very intelligent. Okay, maybe that's important. If it's important to you, it's important. 
But it's not nearly as important. Academic intelligence is not nearly as important as, as character, as being a loving, giving, above all else, a giving person. I'll show you many people with many academic degrees whose personal lives are a shambles. And other people who've got no academic intelligence, they've got wisdom in their hands, they know how to conduct a relationship. There's no substitute for that. Many young people tell me, I have to marry somebody who's very intelligent. You know, they think they're going to have these long, what my daughters call DNMs, right? deep and meaningfuls. They think they're going to sit up all night with their husband speaking deep and meaningful, you know. From the moment you get married, you'll never have another deep and meaningful discussion. <laughs> First of all, who's got time? And secondly, you know what she thinks about the Southeast Asian geopolitical, you know, you're going to talk about that. And therefore, if you need someone to respect because they're intelligent, if that's important to you, that's fine. But it's not a core issue. Emotional intelligence, wisdom in relationships, self-control, refinement of personality, those things are core issues. And so, I think that the second non-negotiable has to be an assessment of the, the person. Not the superficial, what you heard called interests before. That's not... That's not core. How do you know the personality? How do you get to know who the person genuinely is? So one of the issues, of course, is some investigation. What's the person's history? A person that has a long, constant friendships and loyalties. It speaks very well for them. And there's a lot you can tell from the person's life history. <laughs> but also one needs to spend enough time. There's a movement in the religious world that emphasizes very brief relationships. Sometimes it works well. But many times it's premature. One needs enough time to get a feeling that you actually know the person. How long? I give you a rule of thumb. A very basic rule is until no new information is coming in. When you know that another date is not going to change your attitude about this person, not going to give you new information about their values, about who they are, when you can predict what their response would be to life situations, you can't afford to marry someone and then find out that you want 25 children, they want to be sterilized. But once you get to the point where you know how they respond, that's a time when you know that another meeting is not going to change that attitude, change your impression. That's the time to get engaged or to split. Just causing more pain and more difficulty by spending more time. You can accelerate the process by seeing them in different circumstances. You visit the person's home, you walk into their home, what's their family background, see the parents are still married and there's soft music playing and there's loving relationships, that's very good. But if you walk into the home and there's blood on the walls, and human bones strewn about it doesn't bode well you know it's been shown many times in psychiatry and sociology psychology people repeat the patterns of their families unfortunately people who come from very fractured and, and desperately unhappy backgrounds it has an effect especially when people are young a little girl of three or four or five if her father leaves or dies she may never trust Hashem again or trust men ever some people go through those things, come out strengthened. A very interesting pattern we've seen, again, for those of you who work in this area, a pattern we see time and again is a person who comes from a very broken background, very angry and painful background, and they become religious. Very often they start looking at their parents, instead of looking at them with pain and anger and frustration, they start looking at them with pity. If only my parents would have had more authentic Jewish values, they never would have got into that broken relationship and then they make a choose a role model as you heard recommended that they admire 
and they see that marriage and the Shabbos values and the family, very healthy reconstruction, very often. I would say sometimes even stronger than they might have been otherwise. But those are important things. And again, you can accelerate it. You go on young man visits, and you want to know how he behaves under pressure. Get your little sister to spill hot soup in his lap. Get the dog to bite him unexpectedly. Close the door hard on his fingers. Little healthy, you know, a, a dealing with tests. See how he responds. Those things are important. And I think that's by far the most important uh, criteria. There are cultural norms here. I'll tell you a story about a man I know who was brought up in Mayasharim. How he got married. And this is, if you come from a Western background where you've had many relationships and a lot of exposure in the, in the background, this is not for you. So one young man came to see me and told me he's getting married in three weeks' time. He's very anxious. Why? Because they had many relationships before, many intimate relationships. In fact, 136. He's been counting. Now he's worried that his wife will not compare favorably. That's a problem. It's an issue. But if Robin may assure him and you've had no contact with the opposite sex at all, it's a different story. So he told us when he was 18, his father came in one day and he said, Nochum, put on your Shabbos clothes. So he said, why? His father said, never mind. So he got dressed in his Shabbos outfit. And his father walked him across from Meisharim into a house in Gula. And he said to him, Nochum, say hello to your color. So he said, hello. And they said, Mazel tov. The men had a party in the one room. The women had a party in the other room. On the way out, his father said, say goodbye to your color. He said, goodbye. He said, not her, her. Oh, he said, oh, goodbye. <laughs> and... Uh, that was the only time they saw each other before the chuppah. I mean, they met, they approved, you know. There were no standards of comparison. Their family has been doubling in the same shul for the last 350 years. Tremendous commonality of goals and outlook. They got married. That particular story has an interesting ending, that or follow-up, and that is that for many years they were unable to have children. And in those days, they went to see the chazanish for a blessing, a brocha. And the chazanish gave them a brocha for chai banim chaim that they should have 18 living children, and a few years ago they had their 19th. So that is the story, and that's not for... 19 children is for you. You definitely should have 19 children, no question about that. <laughs> but marrying after one date is not appropriate if you come from a, a background where that's not normal. So I think that in summary, in summary, there are two non-negotiable criteria. There's absolutes, obviously, and we get into the technicalities of medical issues and other things like that. Then the non-negotiables, and I think the two of them are natural attraction. And the second, I think, is more important, and that is raw, the person. Who is the person? Before you talk about compatibilities and tastes and interests, who is the person? What are you dealing with in terms of the raw material? And after that, there are many, many negotiables that can be critical. We've even seen cultural mixes that are problematic. Unexpectedly so. Right? For example, I've seen a few times a young man from South Africa or from England or America marrying a girl from a secular Israeli background. Often there's tension. There's girls from a secular Israeli background often very assertive, very self-confident. I mean, how do you handle a wife who's got a submachine gun? You know. <laughs> Tactfully, carefully. So they're cultural issues, right? Uh, say many Western men, English, Americans, South Africans, Australians, marrying women who are European or South American often works very well. Because South American women and many French and Spanish 
Italian women have a very natural femininity. They're not conflicted about feminist issues. Some North American women, especially from the East Coast, sometimes have issues about feminist roles, and that can be an issue. So there are cultural mixes that can raise issues. Sometimes they're very enriching. I met a couple once where the husband was from Uruguay and the wife was from Romania. They told me they met just after the war, and when they met, they couldn't understand one word that the other one spoke. And they got married, they told me they're the most wonderful marriage. They never argue. <laughs> you know, because they can't. So, there's other forms of communication, and those are some important issues. So, in summary, I think those are very important. I'm just going to add one word about medical issues, because again, we're trying to target this to people who help others. One of the commonest questions with medical or psychological issues is, should this be mentioned initially? Many people, many people have some or other issue, a family medical issue, a personal issue, they're taking medication for a mental problem, a depression or anxiety. It's very common in our society. And the question that always comes up is, should this be said beforehand or not? And I'll tell you what I think are some sensible rules. First of all, there are two approaches to this, two possible general approaches. One is that the problem should be stated up front. It has many advantages. There's no disappointment later, no sense of betrayal. The person knows what they're getting into. Things are open. And there are many advantages, many things to be said for that. And sometimes unavoidable, because there's a known issue. It's obvious the family has an issue. Those are, that's one way to handle the issue. And by the way, when it is handled that way, or whenever information is disclosed, very often a doctor gets involved, been in that situation many times, and the family gives permission for their doctor to disclose technical details to the other side. And even then, there are important rules. One doctor has worked in this field for many, many years, decades. In fact, he told me he never agrees to do that unless he's given a permission for full disclosure. Sometimes family says, you can talk about this and this, but you can't say that and that. He says, I'm not doing that. If I'm being trusted to give information, you give me permission to tell your medical facts, then I disclose everything. Right? I can't, I can't be you know, giving some information where they don't know this other... That I can't do. Either no permission and then you deal with it, or you give me permission to say, to talk at my discretion. And by the way, I think a very important rule, as a general rule, not absolute, but a general rule, if you're working with somebody who's somebody, a go-between, a shotgun, let's say, I think it's very important that that person knows the score. Particularly when you're not going to disclose the issue beforehand. And I'll explain that. But first of all, one approach is to say there's a problem and deal with it up front, and there's many things to be said for it. But there's a problem. The problem is, first of all, not everyone wants their personal intimate information out there when it doesn't need to be. Why do you have to go and announce things initially? The relationship might not work. And you've put out into the public domain very personal, confidential things. And secondly, a very common response is, when you hear the person has an issue, very, very often people don't want to meet them. Would you like to meet my friend who's got a serious problem? You know, no thanks. And therefore, that's an issue. Whereas, and not only that, when you meet somebody knowing there's a serious problem, many young people see only the problem. Whereas when you meet someone you don't know there's an issue, you give them a chance. You see them as a whole person. And then when the problem is mentioned, it fits into context. And that speaks very well for the second approach. And the second approach is not to disclose initially that there's an issue. But of course, it has to be disclosed. The halachic rule is that anything that might have made a difference to the decision could nullify the contract. And therefore, it has to be disclosed. When is a sensitive issue? After two meetings, after three meetings, people have rules. Before five meetings, before engagement. 
needs to be judged on a case-by-case basis. But it's highly recommended often not to say the problem in advance. And I think a sensible way to handle that is you're dealing with somebody you trust, somebody who's suggesting a match, somebody who's chosen somebody, bearing in mind that there will be a disclosure of a problem. They've already chosen somebody that's probably suitable. Why shouldn't it work? If you haven't trusted the shatran, the matchmaker, the person, the go-between, and then they suggest someone that's unsuitable, and then here's the problem. They feel betrayed and the thing breaks down. But if they've chosen somebody suitable, that they feel has the maturity to handle this, or maybe they have their own issue which is compatible with yours, that often works very well. I must, see in, I must say that in many years of experience, I've never had a case, I've never been accused, or had the other party being accused of betrayal with anger and frustration. I've had sadness and pain when there's a discovery of an issue that wasn't known before. But when the person is told there was rabbinic advice, it was well taken, they were told not to disclose, and now after three meetings you're being told there's an issue. It was done with, with level-headed foresight. I've never had anyone turn down and say, you, you betrayed me. And I've had relationships that have collapsed at that point. That's true. But very often, once the picture of the person has been built in a general way, it fits in. I have a friend, many years ago got married, who has only one eye. He has only one eye. He's a wonderful young man. He happened to be a national judo champion and, and, and excelled at many things. He's got one eye. And when it came time to introduce him to a young lady, I knew that if I went up to a young lady and said, would you like to meet my friend with one eye? <laughs> she probably would have said no. So we decided not to mention it, and she never noticed. <laughs> she did not notice. He's got a very good glass eye, and she never noticed. And by the time it became an issue, it was completely relevant. <clears throat> and a wonderful, a wonderful relationship. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. In fact, I, probably that should be the general rule. And I think it works very well when you're dealing with a person who introduces you, <clears throat> introduces the person to someone else with intelligence. And by the way, I think that's a very important rule in general. When you're dealing with somebody who has good sense to introduce people who have a basis for a relationship, not just he happens to be more or less male and she's more or less female, so, you know, I think we should introduce them. That's just heartbreaking. People go through that and it's so, it's so disappointing to be put into relationships that are obviously not going to work. And how much do you need to do? You need to know one or two people, a few people who know you and understand you well, that you trust, who are mature, who make sensible introductions. You don't need more shtadlis than that, more, more effort. The marriage comes from Hashem anyway. So you need to make an effort. Effort is to look nice, smell nice, act normal, and have one or two people who know you and introduce you in a sensible fashion. So I think those are some relevant points that we should bear in mind. I'm going to stop here. If there are one or two questions that I can deal with, I'll repeat the question. I'm very happy to do so. And then we'll stop for Abelowski. Yeah. The question here is that if we are assuming that husband and wife are what we call beshert, in other words, in some sense destined, complementary halves of a whole, how do we understand the Torah's permission for a man to marry many women? There's no, really no problem with that. Those are all components of the same whole. Right? Shlomo Melech, for example, he married a thousand women. Shlomo was a man of incredible wisdom and for every facet of his wisdom and every facet of his, of his maleness there was a woman to bring it to birth to bring it to expression so they were part of a composite, composite whole oh that's another question the question is why can a woman not marry many husbands w would you like that? would you like that? Would you like that? Yeah, you, see, you see that a man can marry many women because 
maleness means multipotential energy. That's what maleness means. We refer to Hashem as male, for example, because He's the source of all things. The earth is always female. The earth, which finally brings things to fruition in a finite sense, is always female. All the words for the earth and the world are feminine. The word female in Hebrew, nekevah, means to make specific and limited. Asher nikvu b'shemot, we're fixed by name. Right? Nekevah, feminine, means to make finite and fixed. And the Kabbalists say that the beauty of the male is infinite energy. And the curse of the male is only energy, it's only potential. The beauty of the female is bringing a thing to reality, to birth. And the curse of the female, only this one. And all the others that could have been are lost. So femaleness means bringing a thing to fruition. And it's a finite world. Things can only exist in the world in the form that they, that they have. So maleness is a multipotential source. And femaleness is a bringing to specific finite reality. And so says the Maharal, a man can marry many women. He is a multipotential source. But every woman. And men have that, that energy and that potential. No woman in her right mind wants more than one husband, I can assure you. I mean, one's usually more than, you know, more than enough. The question was, what happens when there's admiration and respect and all the values are there, but there's just no chemistry, there's no gut level reaction, no, no... No, I mean, no one to Okay, okay. So, and if there's not that, then when do you call it off? I really think that's a personal issue. If you know yourself well enough to know that I've given this person a chance, there's been time for them to grow on me, I've seen their genuine beauty, and it's just not for me. Right? There's no personal attachment there. There's no feeling of, of bond that could be established here. It may happen in one date. That's sometimes unwise. But it may happen in two or three or four. I think you meet a person five times if you want a rule of thumb. And there's just no sense of compatibility at all. You feel very distant. You couldn't be close to them. I think that's, that's, uh, I think that's worrying. If you mature enough, by the way, it doesn't matter. If you mature enough. But few people are these days. Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld, one of the great rabbis of the previous generation, turn of the last century he, he was suggested a marriage was suggested for him and he agreed and when he met the young lady she turned out to be 10 years older than they told him and probably could not have children but he married her because he wouldn't upset her because he'd agreed already now you need to be a very big person for that as it happens they were married for a number of years and she never had children ultimately she died he married someone else and he had a family but he married somebody there was a, a genuine reason not to there was false information that but he wouldn't let her down. He wouldn't upset her. So if you're the kind of person big enough that those values mean more to you than your own self-indulgence and your own... But you have to be very big for that. A couple of years ago, there was a wedding in New York where the chassan, the groom, just failed to arrive. He just, he just chickened out. Okay, at the last minute. And the color was standing there and he never arrived. His brother was standing there and as soon as the brother realized what had happened, without a moment's hesitation, he stepped under the chup and married the girl so she shouldn't be embarrassed. Right? Look, maybe you like to, I don't know, but you know. <laughs> but if you mature enough, you can marry for the right reasons, but few of us, right, even though we marry to build love, but it needs to feel good. Rav Simcha Vassaman used to say, if a love doesn't feel good, it's worrying. You're not getting married to feel good. That's not marriage, that's business or prostitution. Right? You're not married to feel good, but if it doesn't feel good, it's worrying. If a relationship isn't feeling good, there's a big difference between engaging in a relationship to feel good and engaging in a relationship for its meaning and it feels good too. Most of us need that. The question is, many marriages collapse. Sometimes very soon we see marriages collapsing at all stages. 
What are some of the causes of collapse in marriage? You know, this is an enormous question. <clears throat> it has a very different profile in the religious world than it does in the secular world. Right? You're well aware, you heard before, that the general divorce rate now is more than 50% in many places. In California, they quoted as two in three. And California is the place where not many people get married in the first place. Some of you would assume when they do get married, they really want to. So we, we're dealing with, even in traditional Jewish communities, right? We're dealing with a very high divorce rate. And I think it's a very big and broad subject. I'm not sure I'm capable of generalizing for you. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that it's issues that were missed in the beginning. Very often, people know each other very well, and they live together very successfully. And years down the line, things collapse. If you want one insight, I would offer you Rav Dessler's. He says that the success of a relationship is built on the intensity of your giving. Which means if you're giving intensely, two people intensely trying to make each other happy, it's a relationship for bliss. Why wouldn't that work? But two people engaging in a partnership, I've got my duties, you've got yours. Problematic. Recipe for civil war. And therefore two people with the ideal, starting with the ideal, that I'm in this to make the other person happy. And we'll enjoy that. I'll enjoy that too. If you don't, there's something wrong. I think it's very unusual to see a relationship fail where two people are thrilled by giving to each other intensely. The question was, I, I said one should screen out and exclude a person with a problem. I don't mean that. I mean that when someone has a very problematic background, it pays to know that to understand them. It doesn't mean you shouldn't marry them. <clears throat> Many people from desperately problematic backgrounds are very strong because of that. Right? It may fit with yours. It may fit with your skills and talents. I do not mean, if you would exclude everyone problematic background, we'd be dead. We have enough trouble now finding people, okay, to, to marry. It's a desperate situation of many people unable to find a partner. If you're going to exclude people with what you call problematic backgrounds, and personal problematic backgrounds, we have a much worse situation. I don't mean that, but I mean that the background of the person is relevant. Speaking medically, when I interview someone, you go through the history, you examine their life course, what have they experienced, and how they responded to that. It gives you a feel and a picture of the person. So don't mean you exclude marrying the person. But I think it gives you a deep insight into the person is when you see what their life course has been. And how they dealt with that adversity. Has it left them broken? Has it left them strong? In which areas are they weak? In which areas have they become strong? Just a simple insight into who the person is as a person. I think that's important. Okay, thank you very much.